This is 112BK coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, the push for a clean dream act. Why Iranian Americans here are having a hard time sending money to earthquake victims there. And brick house walls awash with art. Hi, I'm Ashley Ford, and thanks for joining us. The big game trophy ban put in place by Obama looks like another pillar of 44's legacy that 45 seemed determined to tear down. And it's fitting that this one has to do with sport, if you can call it that. Because it has seemed like Trump is only tearing down this legacy for sport. And while the ban might have had only a marginal impact on saving majestic animals in some African nations, like the elephant, it was symbolically important, a symbolism essential to pushing back against other kinds of symbols far too prevalent. The symbol of ivory, the symbol of an animal mounted on a wall, or a photo of you holding up the tail of a dead 13,000-pound creature. So manly. We don't have to look much farther than Brooklyn to understand man's obsession for bringing these animals low, as if it's the ultimate statement of our dominion over nature. So let's talk about the elephant in the borough. I'm talking about Topsy, the Asian elephant that was executed at Luna Park in Coney Island in 1903 as part of a publicity campaign. According to the accounts of the day, Topsy, a circus elephant, had apparently become unruly after losing her handler, a reputed drunk who would ride her around the streets of the neighborhood. The owners decided to kill her. First hanging was proposed, with a 25-cent admission. When the ASPCA intervened, they opted for some new technology, death by electrocution. A much more recent atrocity was captured by a photographer. A mob in India threw balls of flaming tar at a mother elephant and her baby. They are seen trying to flee the flames, engulfing them. I understand when hunting is a need. And there may be arguments for why it is a need for those in Africa, not only for individuals, but also for the elephants. But can't we refrain from committing these acts when it only serves to feed our libidos or our wallets? Elephants are supposed to be ranked right up there in intelligence, high on the list, right after us humans. But they can't compare to us, not when it comes to acting cruel and stupid. Anyway, we've got an important show today, the Clean Dream Act, Iran sanctions and earthquakes, and a new art installation here at Brick House. But first, these things. Earlier this year, many news outlets reported that NYCHA had lied about inspecting thousands of homes for lead paint and then falsely certified the results to national monitors. And there were some high-profile cases in Red Hook of children who tested positive for lead exposure. NYCHA announced last week that in response to this, two high-level officials have resigned and one has taken a leave of absence. The Public Housing Authority also announced sweeping changes to overhaul operations. Sweeping implies cleaning. Let's hope for the sake of the residents, that's what it means. And do I need to tell you this? Apparently, New York's subway system has the worst on-time performance of any major rapid transit system in the world. According to the New York Times, the problems for the MTA have been a long time in the making. Budgets haven't increased with ridership, and maintenance jobs haven't been filled. Paul Dubois-Jacobs and Jennifer Swinder wrote this great children's book about the subways, My Subway Ride. The city is the body. The subway is the blood, running through tunnel veins. Well, the city better get some oxygen into that blood, or who knows. <laughs> this is better. The New York Transit Museum just announced its holiday nostalgia rides. They're going to break out their vintage cars. They have rattan seats, 
ceiling fans, and all kinds of cool features that'll have you saying, why don't the new subways have this stuff? But here's the thing. Transit Museum, you're located in Brooklyn. So why aren't any of these rides happening in Brooklyn? If you want to venture into the city, you can catch these rides over the next five Sundays along the F Line between 2nd Avenue and Lexington Avenue, 63rd Street, and the Q Line between Lexington Avenue, 63rd Street, and 96th Street. We'll be back with Make the Road and the push for a Clean Dream Act. Don't go away. In September, when the Trump administration announced its plan to discontinue the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, 800,000 lives were instantly upended, including about 42,000 here in New York City. Congress has only a little time to extend protections, if they want to. Some legislators reintroduced the DREAM Act earlier in the year, but members of the activist community are encouraging them to pass a Clean DREAM Act. Here to tell us about that is Yuritza Mendez from Make the Road, New York. Yuritza, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. So first of all, just tell me, what are you up to? You've been real busy. You were just telling me you're having some long days. Why so busy? Well, because we want to make sure that um, politicians are protecting as much as we can, right? Um, and we are urging them to pass a legislative solution um, that will protect undocumented families. Mm -hmm. uh, we just had a really big hit, as you mentioned, for um, taking away the DACA protection. Right. Um, and now TPS for Nicaraguans were also taken away. And the, the future of um, those that have TPS from the other countries are also kind of like up in the air. And so we just want to make sure that we're doing everything that we can um, in the little weeks that we have on, until the end of the year that we are pushing and that we are loud and hitting the streets as much as we can mm -hmm. um, to make sure that we're urging them that something needs to be done um, to protect these families. So what were you doing on Sunday? Yesterday, I was, uh, along with my other colleagues from Make the Road, we went to Stein Island, um, mm -hmm. Congressman Dan Donovan, who represents um, the district where our um, office is in Stein Island, which is in Port Richmond, mm -hmm. um, had a town hall in Port Richmond High School. And so we uh, decided to go and occupy the town hall and make sure that we kept asking him the same questions over and over and again um, about whether or not he's in support of the Clean Dream Act, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so we had, we were able to turn out about 200 members that wow. um, walked out of um, our office in Port Richmond, which is just about like 15 minutes walk from the office to Port Richmond High School, um, being super loud with banners and, and you know, and chanting. Um, and then we got to the town hall and we were able to deliver him about 2,000 um, petitions that we were able to collect. Um, and it was just like, it was beautiful because we were, we had like balloons that said um, Clean Dream Act Now. Mm -hmm. We had a youth that had banners that said Pass a Clean Dream Act Now. Um, and, you know, youth were able in the audience to ask him questions where right. other Staten Island residents were in the space as well. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the youth actually delivered him um, with teary eyes, right? Um, because um, her parents are also undocumented and this is something that is very dear to her. Mm -hmm. Um, and she said, you know, I'm here for my family and I want to give you the 2,000 um, petitions where not only, you know, residents of Staten Island are urging you to pass and support right. a Clean Dream Act. And so 
he was in, in shock, but it was a beautiful right. moment. Um, and we then decided to leave the space because he was not giving us the right answers or the answers mm. that we were wanting to get. And so we just left this, the space chanting, um, in a sense, like disrupting the space, but we did it. Right. Um, all of us standing up and just leaving the space. That's right. what I did yesterday. Well, that sounds amazing. Yes, Some of the people who are tuning in are not going to know what the Clean Dream Act is. They're not going to know how it's different from DACA. Can you explain that to them? Sure. So DACA it was a, it's a deferred action um, that was passed, or an executive order that was passed um, by mm -hmm. the Obama administration back in 2012 that gave some protection to um, undocumented um, youth that had migrated to the states before the age of 16. Um, and they, of course, had to go through a rigorous um, process of showing, like, you know, meeting um, requirements and documents and all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. That protection um, gave them a social security, um, allowed them to continue their education, to get a driver's license, mm -hmm. um, you know, little things like that. And folks were able to be protected for at least for two years because they had right. to renew it every two years. Now, um, as you mentioned, that was taken away um, mm -hmm. on September 5th. And so after that, I guess our push have been stronger because we want to make sure that a legislative uh, solution is, is being passed. Right. And that is what the Clean Dream Act is all about. Um, it's kind of like ensuring and making sure that um, families, undocumented families, including DACA recipients, will be protected or at right. least will be able to adjust their status legally in the states. But the kind of like the add-on to this is that we want to make sure that we are not adding more boots on the ground, mm -hmm. meaning more agents ripping apart families. Right. Um, and, you know, taking also into account, for instance, in those states that are nearby the borders. Mm -hmm. um, and so we just, that's, that's kind of like what the whole ideology of what the Clean Dream Act is all about. It's not just Think, think, thinking about a legislative solution, but also thinking into consideration about um, the agents and, and how they are also kind of like a part of mm -hmm. um, the breaking families and, and how all of that is coming into, right. into it. Did Trump's decision to end DACA surprise you? Yes. Um, personally, yes, because at first he was um, being flip-flopped. He, he was like, you know, I'm going to take it away, but then he was like, nah, I'm not going to impact the, the DACA um, dreamers or students. Right. And then all of a sudden, um, he, or I guess Jeff Sessions, decided to make that announcement, right? Mm -hmm. um, it completely caught us off, off guard. We were still trying to, at least personally, I was still trying to adjust my mind and make sense of, like, that we have this precedent that right. the United States have elected. Um, and, and now it has hit um, a community that is very dear to me. Right. Um, because I have friends and colleagues that make the road that are currently protected uh, with DACA. And right. if that is taken away, that means that they will not be able to continue their education. Tell me about those people, about the people who will be most affected by the ending of DACA if we don't get the Clean Dream Act passed. Who are they? Who are they? They are students um, that are great and want to contribute to this country because they call them they call this country their own mm -hmm. um, they will not be able to further their education that um, at the end of the long run that will be given back to their to their country period mm -hmm. um, it will be affecting um, them as well in a sense because within DACA they have been able to get better paying jobs mm -hmm. and contributing back to their families and making sure that they're at least their 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 lifestyle is better um, 
but also family members, right? Um, mm -hmm. On a day in, day out, um, we get another call of another family that has been impacted by the current administration or the deportation machine, as we like to call it, that make the right. road. Um, and if we don't look for a protection um, that will be beneficial for all of this um, mm -hmm. moving pieces that are contributing to this country culturally, economically, and in so many different ways, um, then you know what is what is the United States really about, right? Right. Um, for me, the United States is a um, is is for immigrants, and it was ba made by immigrants. I'm an immigrant myself, um, and although I may have the privilege of being a citizen, I cannot forget about um, the other folks that I work with, that I grew up with, that I went to school mm -hmm. with. Um, and just because I have a social security number, they're not able to um, further their their education um, or they hit a cap, um, and right. I don't think it's fair. When you talk about not putting more boots on the ground, there was just recently a couple of raids in Brooklyn that tore a power couple families. Can you tell me about what happened there? Do you know? Yes. So um, just last week we heard of two raids that happened here in Brooklyn, one of them um, in Mer Middle Avenue in Bushwick, mm -hmm. just off by the J train. Um, and. The police, a couple of, like I want to say four or five agents went to someone's home. They knocked, um, having a picture of someone that they were looking for, like a suspect. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if they present themselves as being cops or like the NYPD, of course, folks inside their home are going to be willing to cooperate. Right. And that is a tactic that um, we have seen kind of like in a thread after the, the elections. Um, and folks at the home opened up the house. Um, I don't know how they were able to um, get into the premise without a warrant, mm -hmm. and they actually ended apprehending one of the persons that lived in that apartment. Wow. Um, that person, of course, was undocumented, has been in the States for 10 plus years, um, and had you know, a stable job, um, and was taken away. And family members were concerned about where this person is because it's really hard for us to figure it out or to locate where the person is until about 24 hours after the arrest. Wow. Um, so that it can be um, kind of like the system could be updated in a sense. Um, and, you know, I, when I got that call, I was trying to look him up at the ICE locator. I couldn't find him. Um, and just imagine what the family members will feel at that moment, not knowing where your loved one is. Um, and language barrier is also a thing, and we have to be conscious about that, right? Um, not everyone is also not a tech savvy and they don't know how to navigate technology right. or, um, you know, where to locate this person. And so on the back end, that is something else that we at Make the Road have been able to do to help out families, at least to help them locate right. where they're at, giving them information about um, visitation hours and, you know, um, what uh, in terms of like if they want to send the money or a letter, right. how they can do that process. Um, it's hard to do. But also calling the the court hotline to see when the next court appearance for that person will be, right. um, and talking to them about um, legal representations like NIFAP and mm -hmm. what it is out there for them um, to take advantage of. Are there any other reasons for these raids except status? It's really hard to say if you go by what the administration is saying they're just like focusing on folks that um, have a criminal staff and criminal record I'm sorry 
um, and all this other stuff. But then if you look at cases by cases, every case varies, right? Um, and it's really hard to pinpoint, like, you know, how they were able to find that address or how right. they were able to find that one person. And is it even legal for them to show up at someone's home with a picture of someone else and mm -hmm. use that as an excuse or as a tactic to have them open up the door and, right. um, you know, allow them to or ask questions so that they can go into the premise and, um, and all this other stuff, right? There's a lot of right. questions that is really hard to um, answer and to give community members a strength um, and, and the hope, right, that their mm -hmm. loved one will be back at home with them. Um, it, it's, just, it's just tough. So what are our next steps? To con I'm going to make sure that, um, or I guess as an organization, we will continue to hit up the streets, um, continue to go to Washington, continue to um, put pressure on politicians um, to make sure that they are passing and thinking about a legislative solution mm -hmm. and for that to pass, hopefully, before the end of the year. Because um, family cannot wait. Um, right. We cannot continue to have more families being ripped apart. Mm -hmm. um, we just think that it's not fair um, and it's an unjust way to treat people that have contributed so much um, to this country. Rita, thank you so much for being here. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Up next, what New Yorkers are facing in trying to send relief aid to Iran after their recent earthquake? One of the producers on the show, Shireen Barhi, is an Iranian Brooklynite. And she's been trying to send a donation to victims of the recent earthquake in Iran that killed at least 600 and left 8,000 wounded. But because of the U.S. sanctions against Iran, she can't very easily, without submitting all kinds of special applications and going through an arcane process that I won't get into here. Here to talk to us about the far-reaching consequences of the sanctions is Mana Karazi, director of Iranian alliances across borders. Thanks for joining us on 112BK. Thank you for having me. So first of all, can you just tell me why are the sanctions not letting these donations get through? Because even though, you know, people feel like maybe the sanctions are there for a good reason, I think when a natural disaster happens, people go, okay, but why can't we cut through that red tape at least to get people aid that they need? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think with a lot of things happening in 2017, it has to do ultimately with the administration. Mm. Uh, in 2003, and in 2012, very similarly, there were earthquakes, huge natural disaster, disasters in Iran. And at mm -hmm. the time, the Department of Treasury made an ex exception uh, that they haven't made this year. Right. So what are the issues that people are coming up against when they try to donate? Like, if I've tried to send money right now to an Iranian organization, what would happen? What would come up? What would I see? Yeah, any kind of medium you use for that would get flagged. So oh. if you were trying to do that online, on Facebook, PayPal, Venmo, any of those things, it would immediately right. get flagged when it has the word Iran in it. Right. And it would get Just shut down. Just the word Iran. Yeah, and this okay. is something we dealt with right. before the natural disaster. So, like, if you had your friend cheating and you went to go eat somewhere mm -hmm. and you wanted to pay her back for Iranian kebab, that would get flagged. Uh, now, add on top of that a huge natural disaster, and um, it's really limiting people being able to fundraise. You can't donate directly. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you can't give technology. There are a lot of limitations, and institutions that need to be able to help you transfer that money over are mm -hmm. so afraid of being fined that they don't even allow it to happen. Wow. 
What has been the U.S. government's official response to this disaster? Senator Sanders actually came out with a letter with four other members of Congress on right. last week saying we should do what we've done for a previous disasters. One is we should allow the exemption so that people can get money over to their families right. and, and support. Right. Um, and, and we should be able to, as a government, respond to that. The U.S. government at this point hasn't even acknowledged uh, very mm. few agencies have even acknowledged that there's a natural disaster. Right. Uh, so very similarly to some of the other disasters this year, you're seeing a, a lack of response from the government. Mm -hmm. uh, but compound that with the fact that you have an area in Iran that has low resources, very right. little re infrastructure, uh, is a very impoverished community right along that border mm -hmm. um, that's going to probably need support for months, if not years, to be able to house people and, and right. put them back in shelter. Um, and then you have a diaspora community in the U.S. that wants mm -hmm. the support and can't do anything about it. So with the sanctions stopping people from being able to donate on a personal level, uh, that then makes me go, who are the sanctions actually affecting? Is it the people who you know, are actually decision makers in Iran? Or is it affecting these people who don't have much power and who are, to be perfectly honest, just trying to survive? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think in terms of who's it, who's it actually affecting in terms of power, that's a really complicated answer that I don't think anyone, you know, completely knows. Um, I think when it comes to how it's affecting people, that's unfortunately mm -hmm. the reality, is that uh, these sanctions do impact people. And, and in moments like this, when there's a big disaster, it's the most obvious. Right. If you, as an American or as an Iranian-American, want to be able to somehow support people over there, mm -hmm. um, there are a few organizations that have the proper license, the OFAC license, mm -hmm. that you can donate to. But if you wanted to open something up on Facebook and you wanted to do a fundraiser on your own or you wanted to somehow support your family there, that's pretty much off the table. Can't do it. No. What is the situation for people on the ground in this area that was hit hardest by the earthquake? Like, are they getting some aid? Are they being helped? Um, I mean, how bad is it? Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's a couple things. One is um, their immediate needs. Right now, there are several organizations that are meeting them. Mm -hmm. And a lot of Iranians throughout the country are starting to do, you know, like clothing drives. Um, I've seen things around baby clothing, all sorts of products for babies, uh, shelter. We're about to hit the winter. Right. And up in, near that area, that gets really cold and it's mm -hmm. mountainous. So the immediate needs are huge, um, but it's already an area very similarly to what happened with Katrina in the United States. It's an area that already needed uh, a lot of support in terms of infrastructure. Right. And there weren't a lot of organizations on the ground doing that for them already. Right. So when a disaster happens, you want to make sure you're donating somewhere that's actually going to get to people and that has the, the short-term plan of mm -hmm. how they're going to support and then they're going to be around for the long-term development that's going to need to happen. So there's 50% of the schools are destroyed. 50% of the hospitals are destroyed. Um, landslides are blocking those towns from even being accessed by the few roads that do have access to them. Um, and these are all as a result of the disaster. So a person like me hears that and thinks, I want to help. Yeah. I want to do something. I want to send some money. I want to send, you know, something that they need, which right now is probably mostly money. How do I do that? How do I make that happen? Yeah, so there are a few organizations that I recommend, mm -hmm. um, and that's from the work that I've done. Um, Relief International 
is a great organization, it's US-based, and mm -hmm. they have been helping with disasters in Iran since the big one in 2003. Mm -hmm. um, so they have a lot of infrastructure. Another organization I really like is Moms Against Poverty, and that's mm -hmm. because before this disaster, they had already had um, long-term goals in the area. So they'd built five schools and orphanages, and they'd been helping. So they'll be around. Right. Uh, you want to do the immediate needs with, with spaces like Relief International. You want to make sure that you're support, supporting the long-term efforts uh, with Moms Against Poverty. And then there are two other organizations in the US that are very credible that do a lot of work. And uh, these are all Iranian-American organizations, but one of them is Child Foundation, mm -hmm. and the other one is Children of Persia. Excellent. So those are the four that can do it that are on the ground. You're not mm -hmm. going to be feeding into their holiday fundraiser drive. Right. Um, you're going to actually be donating directly to the people there. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being here, Mana. I really appreciate you bringing this information. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. We'll have you back, I'm sure. Up next, the walls at Brick are awash in art. We'll speak to two of the people responsible. What do we call a wall at Brick? A canvas. Yes, there are a lot of walls here, and just as much art to adorn them. For one of the most recent installments, we can thank our next two guests, Jennifer Giroux, Brick's assistant curator, thanks for being with us, and Fernanda Mello, a Brooklyn artist originally from Brazil. Thanks for coming on 112BK. Thank you. So first of all, actually, Jennifer, can you tell me about your role here, your role here and what you do as a curator? Yeah. Um, well, I work with Elizabeth Ferrer, the other curator here mm -hmm. at Brick, uh, and we curate the exhibitions in the gallery. Mm -hmm. um, but along with that, there's all these auxiliary spaces. Um, so one of my tasks is to figure out ways to um, to open up Brick to uh, to more conversations, more people. Uh, and by doing that, we we have open calls. So essentially, we put out call an application for people to submit their work mm -hmm. and then we uh, go through a panel process and find um, say close to 15 artists mm -hmm. and then those artists are then given the opportunity some money some time um, a little bit of development uh, and then they get to show their artwork on our walls so that's how we found Fernand. Exactly. It's called RFP, um, and uh, Fernanda yeah. was chosen out of a pool of 180 artists. Wow. Yeah. What, congratulations, Fernanda, first of all. <laughs> Second of all, Fernanda, how did you land here in Brooklyn, and how do your cultural roots actually more so line up with the art you did here? Uh, my work is related, uh, I think I'm going to answer more the last part. That's okay. Uh, I think my work is related to most like Brazilian culture and mm -hmm. folklore, mythology, culture. I'm kind of related to everything at once uh, because I was raised in Amazon, like, mm -hmm. like a region. Uh, there is a state called Rondonia. So mm -hmm. by living all of, like with all like that Brazilian, like uh, spicy of life with celebration mm -hmm. ceremonies from folklore culture to indigenous culture and all how they melting pot, like how is a melting pot of yeah. like traditions. And raising as a kid with all of that energy makes in coming to Brooklyn. Yeah. <laughs> makes me like a rescuing, re makes me want to rescue all of that energy mm. and bring back to my, like the new, like Fernanda in Brooklyn. Right. And make like and bring some energy from Brazil to the Brooklyn community, uh, mm -hmm. and even the message about like the Yanomamis. 
I think has like a, a big hole uh, to, to the world, you know, as a thing, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Why do you think it's important to provide opportunities like these in Brooklyn? I mean, it, just in general, I think that it's amazing to have an artist like Fernanda um, in our midst uh, and enable her to kind of find her voice, um, which I think is something that we've yeah. talked a yeah. lot about. Did, yeah. And then also uh, to to share that with yeah. the rest of the community. Fernanda mm -hmm. was uh, installing for two weeks and she talked to just about everybody that she came in contact with. Yeah. Um, yes. And then on top of that, we also like have this amazing synergy that's happening in the space. There right. was a performance by the Commons Choir that was happening in the ballroom while Fernanda was installing and they're talking yeah. about wow. indigenous cultures in Brooklyn and she's talking about indigenous cultures yeah. in Brazil. Wow. So yeah. that that conversation probably would have never happened unless they were in the same space together. Working, yeah. Just working in yeah. that same space, which is, I mean, that's kismet. That's connective <laughs> tissue. Yeah, that's I really love people awesome. too in general. I love the, the diversity and we can always exchange and if people always have time a little bit to say hello and to talk about something they like and I'm always like, I'm always willing to, to do that exchange, you know. Right. Yeah. So how do we find the next artist? When does that happen? When's the next, the next call? Yeah, the next Art FP call is in January. Mm -hmm. um, so it'll be up for a month. Uh, so check out our website under Artist Opportunities. Um, and the application fee is $5. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, Fernanda was given 250 to to do the install um, and uh, other spaces are well. I want to reiterate the fact that we're paying people because I think it's a really important aspect of of Brick um, yeah. and our mission is to not only give the opportunity but also to realize that it takes time and effort. Yeah. yeah, to get it done. Well, thank you both for being thank here. You. I really appreciate your time today. Fernanda, you did a fantastic job. I love the artwork, and I can't <laughs> wait to see so more much. from you. Me too, bye. Thanks for joining us today. We'll be back next time with an update on the vandalism of Moss and Sunset Park, a look at the local media landscape after the closure of DNA Info and Gothamist, and some Thanksgiving giving. Hope to see you then. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley Ford and is produced by Ross Tuttle, Fred Brown, Shireen Bargy, Emily Bogosian, and Kritzi Roberts. Our show is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer, and is recorded by our studio technical director, Eric Halasek. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. If you want to get in touch, you can leave us a comment, tweet us using the hashtag 112BK, Email us at 112BKpodcast at gmail.com or leave a message at 347-504-0801. And make sure you subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or whichever podcatcher you use. 112BK is part of the Brick Radio family. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio.